I really needed to switch more into the granular, caring about each employee. So I actually shifted two years in away from being in charge of real estate and I put myself in charge of hiring. And I made sure that for each person, I taught them how to mop. So I kind of made that my thing. And I was like, look, you know what we're gonna do together day one? We're gonna mop. Because I know that the way that this thing's gonna be successful is first and foremost, if the floor is clean. And I just died on that hill. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Andrew Martin is the co-owner of Jara Ventures. He is a digital content publisher that builds and operates websites in emerging industries with exceptional growth potential. In this episode, Andrew details how his first venture as a frozen yogurt franchisee was harder than being a rocket scientist, and how focusing on employee satisfaction changed his business. Andrew and I also discuss evaluating risk and the myth of passive income. If you've ever wanted to be an entrepreneur, this podcast is for you. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, go to www.ericcorum.com forward slash links and sign up for my high-performance newsletter. In this newsletter, I provide you valuable resources and information to help you pursue audacious goals, thrive in uncertainty, and live a healthy and fulfilled life. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Good afternoon, Andrew. Glad to have you with us today. Great to be here. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about your entrepreneurial journey, and I think our our listeners are going to be really excited and are going to gather a lot of really interesting insight on on pivoting and growth. But uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of where you grew up, and then how you decided to kind of become an entrepreneur? Yeah. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I had a, a grandfather who was an entrepreneur, my dad's dad. And um, I think that that really influenced my dad in a lot of ways. He didn't go the entrepreneurial route himself. He went into basically investment banking, worked at Goldman Sachs for over 20 years and led the San Francisco office in high tech. But I think that part of what appealed to him about tech is the entrepreneurial nature of it. He loved that it was always changing. And he was there in the 80s and 90s when there was a ton of change, Mm -hmm. going from semiconductors to personal computers to tablets, laptops, to uh, smartphones. he, he He was really involved in a lot of that. And so I grew up with a lot of exposure to technology, especially, but just the idea of entrepreneurship. So for me, as I was growing up, I always wanted to run a business. I was always excited about that. And I went to high school and, uh, and college that I felt like really fostered that. So I went to Menlo School in Atherton, California. I went to Pepperdine University in Malibu. Is it Menlo like a pretty prestigious high school? It is. Yeah. So you, you were planning yeah. this back in high school. Yeah, I actually, when I was in high school, I got a seller's permit and I started a business when I was in high school. So How about that? this is going to sound kind of funny, but I, I actually used to buy and sell sports cards. So I used to love collectibles, things okay. that could be traded when I was a kid. I was that kid who, when I was young, 
was digging rocks out of the ground and polishing them and keeping them if I really liked them and trading with my friends. And I actually opened up kind of a lemonade stand version of a rock collection and sold <laughs> polished rocks on the street corner. And so as I got older, I loved sports. My dad played baseball at Rice University in Houston, where I currently live. Mm -hmm. And so I just grew up with sports being a big thing, and I just developed this huge passion for baseball cards, basketball cards, football cards, the different sports that I played. And I started to amass a pretty good collection of really valuable cards, and so I, I started selling them. I started going to shows, selling them as eBay picked up, started selling them online. And so I, I really was into business even in high school, and I knew other people who were, who were doing different things like this when I was in high school, and basically just went that route as I got into college, uh, went the business route, and kept thinking about what I would want to do that was more entrepreneurial. So I was advised uh, coming out of college that I should get into sales. Okay. A mentor of mine said, hey, if you really want to understand what it is to run a business, but you don't have a ton of experience running a business, what you need to do is do sales because then you're going to understand the customer. Okay. And if you can understand a customer and what it is to actually satisfy a customer, you can run a business. Mm -hmm. And so he, he said, what you want to do is try to find a business where you can run a sales territory, where you you're basically have a product or even a service, but where you have responsibility for a whole territory of people. And he had done that with Texas Instruments in the 70s and 80s, back when Texas Instruments had these big sales territories with different oh. products. Texas Instruments was in my backyard in Richardson. Okay, perfect. Yeah, all my uh, tons of friends' families worked in that in the compound, and that place is huge. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so I basically set out to look for that. I found a company named Trex that allowed me to do that. And so, I remember starting for them in Northwest Virginia in a little town called Winchester. And I remember them saying, "Hey, you're going to move to a sales territory, but we don't know where yet." <laughs> so I went through the, the sales training program, and it was actually a fantastic training program. I learned public speaking. I learned how to evaluate a customer, how to negotiate, just how to handle some of these different things. And I remember this guy getting into a meeting one time, and he holds up a map of Idaho. He's like, hey, Andrew, how do you feel about Idaho? I said, I don't know. He says, well, you're moving there in two weeks. Wow. So basically, my first sales territory was in Idaho. Where did you live in Boise? I lived in Boise. Okay, so at least you were like in kind of a, a decent city in Idaho. Oh, it was great. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it was great. You know, not a lot of people live in Idaho. Right. But it, was, it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And honestly, for what I was doing for outdoor building products, it was perfect. Trex sold better in Idaho than almost any other state because there's so much area to build decks and fences mm. and handrails and like all this kind of stuff. And so that, that made it really easy for me to get into a sales territory and to initially have conversations with customers that weren't antagonistic. Okay. And so that was, that was really helpful. And that helped me understand more about what I wanted to do in business and just learn more about what a customer really wants versus what the corporate office thinks that they want. So that was really helpful for me, but I decided at that point I wanted to really pivot towards something more entrepreneurial, and I didn't really know what I wanted it to be, so I went to business school. And I, we had a close family friend who went to UCLA Anderson School of Management. He recommended it. it, seemed like a great school to me. 
and they actually had an entrepreneurship focus. And so I, I ended up doing a split entrepreneurship and marketing focus when I was there, but it was super helpful. Let me ask you a question just real quick. Was actually going into the field beneficial to when you went back to school? Like, did it give you a little bit more context for what you were learning so that you could apply it better? Yeah, it was huge because a lot of other folks who were going into business school had very junior roles. Even though a lot of people were smarter than me, had achieved really interesting and unique things in their lives, if they didn't have any customer experience, it was really difficult for them to digest a sales class, a marketing class, a negotiations class. A lot of my peers' work experience was much more technical, mm. and they really hadn't gotten to a place in their careers where they had managerial responsibility yet. And for me, I didn't have managerial responsibility, but I was already in front of the customer because I was in sales. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to digest a lot of the theory that they were talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, there are certainly things I wasn't able to digest. And part of what I'm going to get to in my story is how difficult it actually was for me to run a business that had employees. Like there's a lot of ways where my first year of doing that was a train wreck in spite of my sales experience because there were other holes in my skill set. Had you managed anybody up to this point or was it just you direct sale to the customer? Me direct selling to the customer. Okay. And so going into having a staff of 120 employees was a whole new world for me. Very different, very challenging. But I do think that looking back on my business school experience, and the entrepreneurship, almost everybody who was teaching entrepreneurship classes ran businesses that had employees. And mm -hmm. so I was able to, when I faced a difficult situation, take some of what they were saying in hindsight and be like, oh, okay, either this is what I need to do, or now that I've failed, this is what I really need to do to get out of this hole that I'm in, which is a pretty deep hole. Okay. So... I believe that you, you, we talked before that you said you really got interested in this franchise model. What, did. what kind of spurred that on? For whatever reason, you know, I think some people grow up and they think, oh, I want to be a doctor when I grow up, or I want to be a professional football player or, or whatever. Right. For me, uh, one of my dreams was actually to open a franchise food service location. And okay. I remember thinking that even as a little kid, because I'd go into these places you know, like Jack in the Box or something like that. And I, I remember when I first learned of this idea of a chain, it was like, wait a minute, there's not just one location? <laughs> you guys have lots of locations? That's incredible. How, yeah. do you do, how do you do that? And just pursuing that question going into young adulthood and through different business education that I've been through, I just found it fascinating. And, and I knew at the time I didn't really know how to create the systems that were needed to be able to run a business. And I thought that that would be a great way to get my foot in the door. Mm. And I, I think in some ways it was, but also in some ways it wasn't. Because I, I, the truth is that if you're getting into a smaller franchise that's a bit more opportunistic, like, hey, I, what I really want to do is grow this and take over a, a major city metropolitan area like Houston, you're not going to get McDonald's. Right. Those already exist. And so you want to go more opportunistic, even if it's a good brand that has some, some major, majorly good things going for it. You're also going to be going for a brand that doesn't have a lot of those systems up and running yet. Because so how, how could, there's some, how could, some, some more risk involved with that. 
yeah, there's a ton of risk in that. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't know that at the time. All that I was focusing on at the time was the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I was asking a lot of questions about, um, you know, how does this work out from an investor perspective? How can we pitch to our investors? Mm -hmm. Um, How are we going to do a real estate strategy? What's going to be our footprint as we expand from a real estate perspective? I was asking questions about the brand. How does the brand present on social media? Do they do billboards? Do they do radio? All of those are super important questions, mm-hmm. but I really wasn't thinking about the questions of distribution and how we're going to vet and train and motivate and retain employees at this pay level. And how are we going to handle security on an individual basis? So we were probably robbed 60 times in my first year. Are you serious? Yeah. I I just didn't think about that. This wasn't on my radar. You were robbed at a frozen yogurt shop? Yeah. I mean, do do they think there's a lot of cash at these spots or is it, was it just the the location? Uh, This is interesting to me. I can understand a, a place where there's maybe a ton of like high volume. I don't know. Anyways, keep going. So that's what I would have thought too. I would have thought, okay, you know, people rob Wells Fargo, people right. rob America, people maybe rob Target. People aren't going to rob a frozen yogurt location. Right. But it turns out that even having $200, $300, $400 on hand is enough for somebody to want it. Mm. And for people who are trained to look for holes in your security system, like, we didn't have enough cameras to cover every single access point if somebody broke through a particular window. Or if one manager was going to transition a shift to another manager, we really didn't have a cash handling procedure in place initially that would prevent one guy from taking $40 every time. Mm. We just didn't have those processes in place. And I didn't think about that. I didn't think about Um, what it would feel like for me to have an employee. I kind of think about this now, like like I have a three-year-old daughter. And the way that I used to run employees initially was I would just go and effectively go and tell my three-year-old daughter, it's time for you to go to sleep. Okay, we'll see you later. I'm going to, I'm going to go over here. (laughs) The chances of that going well are not good. Yeah. Right. And so I would actually, I would just go and tell either a team member, a shift leader, or one of our managers, I I would just tell them basically a a grand vision of what I wanted them to do. Expecting that it would get executed the way it was going to get executed in your head or they could use creativity or whatever. Right. Like you you guys will be able to figure this out. I'm just going to push this on you. Nobody in the room has an equity stake in this. There's really, you know, eight to $15 an hour employees who are making these decisions who just frankly don't really care as much as I care. And now I'm entrusting them with the complete success or failure of this business because what I need to go do is look at this real estate location, you know, that's opening up because we're expanding. And that's what I need to do is go work on expanding. Oh, wow. And what I realized is that the real risk is at a unit level. Hmm. What you need to do if you're running a chain of frozen yogurt locations is you need to make sure that the one that I'm opening right now is successful at a unit level. The economics need to work out. I need to know exactly how many employees are going to be on the floor at all times. I need to know that they've been trained effectively in a sustainable way that they can carry this out Mm -hmm. over the course of time. They need to know that I care about them 
and that I have a relationship with them and that I'm going to put my neck out for them against a customer, against an investor, against somebody at corporate. They need to know that I'm on their team and that's what's going to make them be on my team. Mm. And so I, I really needed to switch more into the granular caring about each employee. So I actually shifted two years in away from being in charge of real estate and I put myself in charge of hiring. And I made sure that for each person, I taught them how to mop. So I kind of made that my thing. And I was like, look, you know what we're going to do together day one? We're going to mop. Because I know that the way that this thing's going to be successful is first and foremost, if the floor is clean. And I just died on that hill. And I was like, look, we're going to do figure eight mops for the next 20 minutes. And if you've never mopped, this is actually going to be a little bit hard for you. Hmm. But I want you to know that the owner of these 12 locations is going to mop with you. And if you have a problem, I'm going to be there for you. Mm. That totally shifted our business. Because when, when at first they felt like I was checked out, you know, they, they were like, hey, this is just the guy who comes in to pick up the check. And he, he's focused on opening new locations. We opened four locations my first 12 months of doing this. And that was a huge mistake because I didn't have time to really invest in the people component. And what I really, really learned is that the major, again, the major risk in opening a business that has employees is that the employees aren't going to be trained or motivated. Because mm. if my, if, if my success or failure is going to be these folks, that's what I really need to focus on. Honestly, Product quality is important. Yeah, I want a real estate location. But what I came to find is having systems that were specific in place to make sure that the employees felt cared for, effectively trained to do their job, confident, motivated. That, that was just huge. Like Did that was the biggest that variable. That they were more enthusiastic about because you have a sales background. Mm -hmm. You obviously want to sell the product. Yes. If people feel like yeah. the boss is checked out and that they're not supported, then they're not really motivated. It's kind of like every movie you've ever seen where people are working the the restaurant. Yeah. They're like, yeah, whatever. Da, da, da. But did you find that like their attitude and their willingness to go out and sell was, did you see it? Did you actually see a change in the bottom line too? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, we, we saw whole transformations of locations. If we had a certain satisfaction metric hit within that location. So I used to run surveys twice a year on employee satisfaction. And I had a very particular way of asking questions so that they wouldn't BS me. And I made sure that they were anonymous so that people could say whatever they had to say. And for the stores that had either an average four or a five, which is satisfied to be working here or very satisfied, we had the best bottom lines. We had by far the highest sales at those locations. We had the least turnover at those locations. And we had an ongoing success record that would indicate future profitability increasing at that location next year. So our vision for the future was better. And at the locations that we had either a three, two, or one as an average satisfaction level. So three would being neutral, two being dissatisfied, five, one being very dissatisfied, we had the lowest sales, we had high turnover, and our theft rates were higher. So wow. I mentioned earlier that we got robbed a lot in my first year. Part of that was because people were very dissatisfied with working here. They felt yeah. like 
Nobody cares about me. I really don't know what I need to do to succeed in this job. I don't feel like I have advancement opportunities. And if I'm a high school or college employee, I don't really know what this is going to do for me in the future. Like, why am I doing this mm-hmm. right now? People yeah. are much more inclined to do things like, hey, I'm not going to charge my friends when they come in for a frozen yogurt because I just don't really care about this job. Right. Or, you know what? Um, I, I need 20 bucks to, to go uh, take my girlfriend to a movie. I'm just going to take it out of the register because if I get fired, I don't really care. That's right. And so what we found is that it was super important to make sure that people were not just neutral, but were at least satisfied with it, with this job. And my goal was that people would be very satisfied. And I, to do that, I made sure that everybody knew me and they had my cell phone number and they knew that if they called me, whether it was about a work issue or a personal issue, I would pick up the phone and talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. If they needed an advance on their paycheck, I would give it to them if they were a good employee. If they had a crisis on the floor and they needed to call me and I wasn't there for that because we had 12 locations. So at the most I could only be at one location, right? Right. If they screwed something up and it was an honest mistake, I made sure to take that call and not hammer them for that, you Mm -hmm. know? And all of those type of things, just putting in those kinds of policies in place as well as better cash handling, you know, policies that really helped us with the theft in the long run. But like I said, we handed out those surveys and the best year that we ever had from a bottom line perspective was when we had a 92% satisfied number for our employees. And that was something that I really took a lot of pride in, in years three and four in my frozen yogurt experience, because I was, I, I was like, Hey, these folks, whether they want to grow within our company or whether they see this as a stepping stool to growing life skills for whatever they want to do, they actually care about what they do. Maybe they love frozen yogurt, maybe they don't, but at least they love working with us. You know, what's really interesting to me is we often talk about, or even in being sales, satisfying the customer. Mm-hmm. But it seems like you kind of matured and grew to how can I satisfy, how can I get my team to be satisfied in the work that they're doing? And that that improved customer satisfaction, which drove up the bottom line. Yeah, I think the truth is in most industries, unless you are a role that works directly with customers, if you're at mm-hmm. a managerial level or you're at an ownership level where you have employees, your customers don't come first. Your employees come first. Mm. And if you can take care of your employees, the customers will be taken care of. And I, I, I have found that to be true. I've heard different people say that within, you know, within owner circles. And at first, I thought, how could that be true? Really, at the end of the day, you got to side with the customer over your employee no matter what, because the customer is always right. What I found is that, sure, the customer is important, but the customer is not always right. And especially if this is a low-level transaction, like something, uh, you know, retail-based, even if it's a great customer, who I really need to be happy at the end of the day is my employee. And so I'm going to make sure to do whatever I can to focus on that employee's success. And a lot of the time, the customer and employee can succeed together, and that's great. But if not, I'm going with the employee. And that may sound controversial, but I'm in the ride or die category with my employees. <laughs> like these are the folks that I'm going to go to war with and they need to know that I have their back. Mm, I love that. Now, we talked before that, you know, 
running this business wasn't as smooth as easy as you thought. And there was something you mentioned about a rocket scientist that was working with you. You, you care to expound on that? Yeah. So when I got into franchising, I, I was really excited about it because I knew that they did have the brand already made. They had a number of different systems in place, but it's still quite complex. Mm-hmm. And especially something like running a self-serve frozen yogurt business, you got typically seven different frozen yogurt machines running in any location that cost about $12,000 each. And one thing I learned about those frozen yogurt machines is that God did not create the world (laughs) for things to freeze. God created the world for things to be heated. And if you are are trying to freeze things, you are going to have all kinds of issues with that Mm. Um, on an ongoing basis. So let's say that in our 12 locations, we had you know, say 95, 96 machines running at any given time, I would bet that 15 of them were down at any given time. And so it is just a constant headache to figure out how you are going to make these machines work. Because invariably, what's going to break is the most popular flavor at the most popular time, because that's when the thing (laughs) is getting overheated. That's when it's getting overheated. So I'm getting a call every single Friday at 9 p.m. at our top location and usually, you know, our second and third best locations, like code red, the vanilla <laughs> is down, you gotta <laughs> come over here and help me fix this thing. <laughs> you know, every single Friday and Saturday night, that's that's the call that I'm gonna get. So Houston, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. And it's <laughs> absolutely, Houston, we have a problem. And usually we got a problem in Friendswood and we got a problem oh. in Cyprus. At the same time, and for anyone who's not from Houston, that's more than an hour drive apart. So running these frozen yogurt locations was quite difficult between the frozen yogurt machines and the employees and, of course, the real estate and the ongoing management of the brand and working with the corporate office. And so there's all these different balls that you're trying to juggle. Mm-hmm. And there was another franchisee in Florida whose actual profession was to be a rocket scientist. So outside of being a frozen yogurt entrepreneur, he currently was a rocket scientist. And I remember talking to him and saying, and, and just kind of feeling him out like, hey, how did you get into frozen yogurt? And he's like, well, to be honest, I wanted to do something that was a little easier than being a rocket scientist. But what I found is that running a frozen yogurt location is actually harder than being a rocket scientist. (laughs) And I couldn't believe that he said that. And I thought he was kidding. But he said, no, because the truth is that being a rocket scientist, we have complicated problems. But basically, smart people can figure out the answers to those complicated problems. Mm -hmm. In running a frozen yogurt location, there are variables that are unaccounted for and that you could never predict. And so really what you're trying to do is mitigate the problems on the downside and trying to figure out all these different variables, kind of like, like playing a sport. There's all these different variables that you can't foresee, you know, ranging from health to weather, to relationships, to trends that are upcoming, to legislation, to all these complex systems and with things interacting that you can't predict Weather, like you just said, like, flow of people if it's a rainy day versus a non-rainy day and uh, when all these things are factored in weather like you said it just you just don't know when vanilla is going to be on tap on a tuesday night yeah exactly yeah and because you don't know those variables it's going to be really difficult to manage this and so he was being sincere 
And so it was, it was really just an eye-opening moment for me to consider what I've gotten myself into. Like, this is really difficult. So anyway, yeah, that was one of the learnings for me is just to consider frozen yogurt has hundreds of variables that are unaccounted for on an ongoing basis that just require you to be nimble and not think that you have it all figured out and be continually Mm -hmm. willing to learn and try to problem solve in fluid situations that require a lot of relational investment and a lot of time. And that just makes it very complex. Yeah. So if we zoom back on this whole experience, this frozen yogurt experience, you did exit, right? I did exit. Okay. And and your timing on that was pretty good. The timing was fantastic. So I really got into the industry as it was heating up and I got Mm -hmm. out of the industry as it was cooling down. So as they say, buy low, sell high. And I feel like I, I really was able to do that, which was mostly luck to be honest. But I, I, did, I did have that, uh, that sequence. But the thing is that on the front end, I really wasn't evaluating the risk appropriately mm. like I should have. I was looking at an industry that I didn't know much about. And I was excited about it because all I could see was opportunity. And I think if I were to approach that again, I would want to make sure that I could put pencil to paper and appropriately evaluate all these different risks Mm. and be able to write down enough risks that it almost seems unattractive. Like if I'm honest, I want to be able to write such a, such a comprehensive list of all of the different risks that we're looking at that I want to know that I'm not getting in this just for financial opportunity. I'm getting in this because I really am excited about what we're doing. I'm excited about frozen yogurt. I'm excited about people. I'm excited about real estate. I'm excited about my team. And that's why I'm doing this. And I I don't think that I had an appropriate sense of what the risk was. I just got the the cash eyes, you know, like a cartoon character. And I thought, okay, I, you know, I worked a corporate job. I did sales. I have an MBA. I'm ready for this. I'm going to be able to just be smart enough that I can make money at doing this. And then I'm going to have a liquidity event and it's going to be amazing. And I really found that that kind of arrogance was a problem. And that cost me, I ran a negative cash flow for the first 16 months of doing that business. And so that was a real problem. And I just didn't know what I didn't know. Mm. Uh, So for me, at this point, if I'm evaluating a business that we're going to go into, again, I want to have a comprehensive list of all the different possible problems. I want to know enough about the business to know why it's unattractive. Because not knowing about a business doesn't make it an arbitrage situation. Not knowing about the business just makes me the ignorant guy who thinks that I'm just going to come in and figure it out when other people have been doing this better than me for 20 years. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, so now I, I do a lot more due diligence on trying to think through what are the real risks if we go, if we take our business in this direction or if we open up this new branch of what we're doing. Or I don't want to have a lot of money in it. If, if we're just kind of putting a toe into a, a, a lake that we've never been in, I want to make sure that what I'm doing is learning by sweat equity, not learning right. by these big CapEx things that, you know, I'm putting in $500,000 just to learn something. Like at this point, yeah. I want to put in... <laughs> You know, I want to put in a few hundred hours and maybe $10,000 if I'm going to try to explore uh, a new area. Uh, getting into something retail-based was pretty high CapEx. And so that was, 
that was a risk that I just didn't really think about is I'm going to have to learn this industry and it's going to be very expensive to learn it if I don't have a lot of industry experience. So for example, the way that uh, it was explained to me on the front end is you put yogurt in the back of the machine and when you pull down the lever, money comes out. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing could be less true. Right. Um, nothing could be less true. And I mean, and honestly, I talk to a lot of people who want to get into running a business, especially if they're interested in a franchise and they have a corporate job. Passive income is kind of a myth. I mean, unless what you're doing is betting on the stock market. I just want to buy a mutual fund and basically assume that the stock market, you know, the, the economy of whatever country is going to increase X percent a year. Great. That's pretty passive income. If you're talking about running a franchise or you're really going to run a business, even if it's not correlated to the hours that you are putting in, like it's not, I put in an hour of work and I generate X amount of cash flow. Even if you're a little bit more removed from the hourly component, you're still going to have to put your blood, sweat, and tears into that business to make sure it succeeds. This isn't just going to run itself. Are you on social media much? Honestly, I do it for work uh, yeah. so much that I, I, I just I get kind of burnt out on it, especially in political seasons. But, yeah. but yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like on, on social media, these folks that have made money, who knows if some of these people have actually made money. Some of them you know, other ones you don't know. But basically, they're making it sound like if you do X, Y, or Z, that you can go to bed and you're just going to have money pouring in. And like you said, but that's really not the reality. There has to be a lot of work to get to a point where you can go to bed and wake up with more money in the bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not going to be something where um, I did this get rich quick scheme because I invented this widget that does X and Y. And, you know, two months later, I'm, you know, living in the Caribbean and collecting checks. Like, that's just not how things work, right? right? And I think that if we're honest with ourselves about, what we know to be true about life, there's just not a lot of arbitrage situations. Mm. And, and like, honestly, if you, if you find something that's a short-term arbitrage, that's probably going to close up pretty quick. Even folks that I know who do things like day trading, they're real experts in what they do. And they put a lot of time and energy into that. This isn't just you wake up one day and you're a day trader. Mm. So, so just the amount of, of energy that people put into things to be able to generate money is much more so than what you would think if you see, you know, the bottom of some YouTube feed where somebody's posting like, you can make $300 an hour and you don't need to do anything, you know, something like that. Like, it's just, it's, it's some kind of a pyramid scheme. Yeah, it's you know? a fantasy land. So you exited from the uh, yogurt, frozen yogurt industry where all you had to do was pour in the stuff and you pulled out and all this cash came flooding out. Right. What did you move to next? And I'm really like, why did you move to that? Cause I mean, you had these learning experiences and I'd be interested to know like what you moved to and why you did that. Yes. Yeah, so there's basically two reasons that I got out of frozen yogurt. One is the nine to 11 PM on Friday night work every week. Mm. And I, I had gotten married during that season and my wife and I were talking about having a kid and, uh, and she, she basically just said, Hey, do you realize that you work every night and weekend? Mm. It's like, 
wow, I, I hadn't taken, um, I only took four weekends off in a four year stretch. And two of those weekends were for my honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And so just the hours that were being worked was just massive and they were heavily night and weekend. And that was an issue for me in terms of what I wanted to do with my life. I actually were you, did. Were you burning work. out a little bit? Um, I was burning out on the type of work I was doing, but honestly, I could have done more nights and weekends, but I, I just, for, for, for being a husband and being a future dad, I just didn't think that that was a good, good mix of where I was allocating my time. But as far as burning out, what it really was is we looked at the industry and this was more of a trendy industry. So we got in at a trend and we saw the trend shifting to popsicles and in some places frozen custard and other gourmet frozen desserts. And it just seemed like the time to get out. Competition was up. When we first went into a few different markets within the Houston area, we were the only player. Four years later, there was four or five other frozen yogurt competitors within two miles of every location that we had. And so it was like competition was going up and the trend was going away from us. And we just felt like it was time to get out. So that's why we exited. We found a guy who was interested in buying all of our locations, plus our food truck, plus our stadium contracts. And so it it was a perfect fit. And so we got out and we took a little bit of time to think about what we wanted to do. And my business partner's two brothers were in search engine optimization. And the truth is that we had gotten into a lot of commercial real estate because we were signing leases on all these different frozen yogurt locations. And so we really spent a lot of time thinking through real estate. And what we learned about search engine optimization is that it was a lot like real estate. It actually had a lot of similar metrics to how we would evaluate real estate, like Mm -hmm. in terms of thinking through an individual domain and that domain property and how Google or Yahoo is evaluating that property. They're really looking at a lot of similar things to how a realtor would look at a piece of real estate. And so we immediately got interested in that and we started to go down that road and we, we ended up hiring them to work with us and really teach us more about how to run content marketing blogs, which is, which is really what I do at this point. And so we basically write content and get it to be highly ranked within search engines and then generate traffic for major brands off of that content. And so we work with brands like YouTube and HBO and Sling TV and ESPN and Major League Baseball and these different companies to get their content out. And a lot of people ask me, why do those huge brands need you? Mm-hmm. Don't they have their own digital marketing departments? And of course right. they do. But those, uh, the content that's coming off of the ESPN.com domain is not perceived to be unbiased. Okay. And it, it also we're really good at going for particular keywords. Those, those companies are more going after very short, major keywords. We're really going after long tail keywords. So uh, somebody searches something like, I want to watch 
the Texans versus Steelers NFL game on Saturday. And they write that out in Google. That's a long-term keyword search. We specialize in long-term keyword searches. And we will actually drill into very particular keywords to target. And so when people are writing that you know, query into a search, very typically one of our websites will come up. And so we, we kind of have a specialty in that. And so, again, that sounds kind of like a strange niche, and it's very difficult to get into that niche. But that's really what we found that we have an expertise mm. in doing. And that is, again, seems like a major shift in, from going from frozen yogurt to something like search engine optimization. But as far as, again, evaluating real estate and what makes real estate attractive and how to get people to go to real estate, it's very similar. So basically, that's kind of how I, I got to do what I do now. And in all honesty, it's been much more lucrative than doing frozen yogurt because we're not as constrained to, to a customer base uh, like we were in frozen yogurt. Um, but the other thing was we learned how to run a business. Wow. And when we, when we were doing frozen yogurt, we just didn't ask the right questions to evaluate that risk. And at this point, we really are better risk managers. And we can think through what kind of industries do we want to get into that we're going to try to optimize? And what keywords do we really want to target? And so like at this point, if we're talking about getting into a, a particular industry within SEO, we're now talking about what are the affiliate payouts? How competitive are the long-term keyword searches? What is our proficiency on our team to build backlinks for that particular type of niche? Mm -hmm. And we really can figure out the answer before we even get into it. Uh, whereas before, it was much more of a, we're going to throw something against the wall and see if it sticks kind of approach. And do you sell this service to other people? So we actually don't. We used to sell uh, the service of SEO, um, but we, we don't at this point. We run our own websites mm -hmm. and we manage our own content. And what we do is we actually negotiate those affiliate relationships with these major brands. Wow, and so so really, there are they're the gatekeeper. They're they're our customer in some sense, and then the consumer who really isn't paying us are the people that are you know people that are doing the keyword searches, coming to our websites organically through Google, and then they're going out to external links of whatever these different brands are. Right, and when they purchase, you get an affiliate rate. Exactly. Wow, that's pretty cool. I, I mean, that's. This Black Friday was just this past weekend and Cyber Monday. And um, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot to be, uh, I mean, a lot of people get a huge bump around this time of year. I don't know about your industry, but like my sister's industry, she, mm -hmm. she, you know, she sent me some numbers. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, like just a yeah. billion of marketing for like three days was amazing. Well, what we do with a lot of our uh, search and optimization is we target keywords that are related to events. So something mm -hmm. like Black Friday or something like a particular sporting event or an award show or whatever, mm -hmm. we, we really tailor and, and, and hone in on those kinds of things. So we do some of that stuff. We actually have more of a sports emphasis. So for us, Black Friday was more about promoting the college football that was happening on Black Friday. I got so you. for us, it was a big uplift because we were targeting a lot of those particular games on that day. But yeah, I mean, anything that's generating more hits on Google is really something that for us is an opportunity because people aren't searching the same two or three words when they're searching in Google. They're searching five and 10 words a lot of the mm. time. 
And so we're really trying to figure out exactly what are the five words that Eric Quorum is going to type in when he's on Google and how can I be number one when he searches those five words? And so it's just a different way of thinking about it. Wow. I love it. You got a lot. I have a lot of questions for you for later on. Um, This is really fascinating to me. So um, what are you learning now? I mean, like what, what is, what has got you excited now? It seems like you're a lifelong learner. You're always exploring. Like what are you really interested in now? What is something that you're kind of diving into? From a business perspective, we're actually looking at rural land. So what we've seen with COVID is that people are moving farther and farther away from cities. Mm-hmm. So kind of the last 20 or 30 years has been people moving back into cities and parts of cities being gentrified that really were not alive before that in the same way that they are now. And this is true in almost every major city. But what we've found in the last especially year is people are actually, that trend is reversing. And it's not just going to suburbs. There are people moving to suburbs, but the, the, uh, what we're seeing in like keyword search, for example, is that there's tons of keyword searches toward rural land. So people are buying rural land in the middle of Texas, in the middle of Colorado, you know, New Mexico, Montana, Wyoming, things like that. And so we've actually started to buy and sell rural land. And that has become an increasing thing for us. And again, just to continue that trend of what I was talking about earlier, real estate has been, and just how real estate is evaluated, especially through like a consumer looking through a digital platform, how they're evaluating real estate is is very much consistent in terms of that set of metrics, whether it's wanting to, you know, get on Netflix or whether it is frozen yogurt or whether it's rural land, a consumer making an evaluation on real estate is kind of what we do. And so that's really what we've been doing. And we're, we're actually um, starting to partner with a guy who is, if, has a specialty in Colorado and Texas, especially of how he evaluates rural land. And so it, it's been really cool just to see how he's set up his system. Like, how does he know whether a piece of land is undervalued and whether we could resell it within the next six months? He's got this whole set of criteria that he evaluates. Like, is this going to, is this going to work? You know? We're going to put a, an offer on this piece of land for $40,000 and we want to sell it for $80,000 within the next six months. And we're going to do some minor development to make sure that happens. What piece of land is going to meet that set of metrics? Well, mm-hmm. he really knows the answer to that. But, and I'm, that's not my specialty. Um, and honestly, SEO isn't my specialty either. I'm more the business guy who knows enough to be dangerous. But when he's talking and he's using these particular language, you know, this, this set of language to describe it. I'm like, that makes sense to me yeah. because, you know, we, we really have been looking at real estate for the better part of the last 10 years. And I don't exactly know what piece of land is going to be able to double in value in the next six months, but I know that he does. And I know that I want to partner with him and I can yeah. kind of help him evaluate that from a business side. So, so that definitely makes me excited to, to work with him. That's awesome. Well, Andrew, I, I really appreciate your time today. I've I've really learned a lot. I think people have taken a, a lot away from your story about evaluating risk and the value of people over bottom line and how when you value people, other great things happen. But thank you for the amazing work that you're doing and your time and sharing with us today. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. 
If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high-performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Quorum, Twitter at Eric Quorum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.